This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. Amen, amen, amen. You know, it is well with my soul. It is well with our soul. You know, that's an affirmation that we can that we can lean into, that we can, we can believe, and it's an affirmation that comes from this idea that we know who God is, that he's on the throne, and no matter what, no matter where you are, no matter the fact that we are in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic, and there's a lot of uncertainty in the air, and there's a lot of challenge in the air, and there's people who are getting sick, and people who are w- wishing to get back to normal, there's all kinds of activity happening that we can still say deep in our spirits, it is well, it is well, it is well in my soul. Not because my circumstances dictate it, not because I, you know, I kind of have some kind of intellectual assent to it, but because Jesus Christ is still on the throne. And so I pray and I believe that you are experiencing that very presence in your life right now. Listen, I want to thank you for joining us today, uh, you know, and also want to encourage you to continue in your giving. Uh, you have been incredibly faithful. We are still on mission. We're still doing everything we can to reach people all around the world. Uh, we've been connecting with missionaries here and there as well as they are themselves. Some of them are still stuck in their countries. So your faithful giving is helping us actually reach people all around the world and even in our own community. So thank you so much for your, for your generous giving. Um, I just have a real quick announcement that I want to share with you before we get into the message this, uh, this morning, but that is that July 19th, just, just three weeks or two weeks from today, July 19th will be our very first public service that we'll be gathering back together again. I want to encourage you. I want to let you know I'm super excited about this. I know that some of you, many of you are excited. We're also, it's, it's a couple weeks off because we're getting the building prepared so we can maintain some good social distance. We're getting all our systems in place. You'll get to hear more about that soon. But July 19th, mark that on your calendar. We're excited about coming back together, seeing each other face-to-face again, being in public services together. So join us on that day, July 19th. All right. We are continuing this series called Follow Me. And uh, in this series, we've been speaking about this little phrase, follow me. It's probably the most concise, most clear invitation of Jesus Christ. And that is to, to follow me. Now, what does that look like? What does that, what does that mean to follow me? Well, the first week that we talked about it, we talked about it, 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 it looks like a branch that is connected to the vine. A branch that is connected to the vine. That you and me, we are the branch. Jesus is the vine. That we are called and invited by Christ to stay connected to the vine. When we are connected to the vine, we bear fruit. When things are chaotic and we need peace, there is peace that flows through the vine to the branch. When we are disappointed and brokenhearted, there is, there is joy that flows through the vine to the branch. As we stay connected to the vine, we bear fruit. And that's where we started off this series in fact, I, I've said this several times. We could get everything else right. We can get our theology right. We can get our social, social justice programs right. We can get all kinds of things right. But if we get this wrong, we get it all wrong. So stay connected to the vine. That's the, the, the first call. That's what it means to follow Jesus is to stay connected to the vine. Then last week we talked about, in a very concrete way, we talked about following Jesus means catching the wind. Letting the Holy Spirit blow us to wherever the Holy Spirit wants us to go. Wherever God has planned for us, that that's the direction that we're going to go in. We're going to catch the wind. 
We're going to be people who are living lives full of the Holy Spirit, people who are, who are trusting God's direction in our lives. And what that translates to is that we're making concrete decisions day in and day out to walk in step with the Holy Spirit, to allow ourselves to be led and guided by that we're living lives that are, that are overflowing with the Spirit. That's where we've been. Today, as we continue to see, we're going to discover that a big part of doing what God has called us to do is to be bold, taking risks, thinking outside the box, doing things in unconventional ways. In fact, one of our values here at Life Church is the, is the value of relevance. I've got it here. I'm going to share it with you. Relevance, and we wrote this 15 years ago when we started the church, and it starts like this. Irrelevance is irreverence. Now, what do we mean by that? See, relevance is not, doesn't mean trendy. Relevance doesn't mean, you know, we, we wear jeans when we preach, although that's what we do. What we mean by irrelevance is irreverence. It means that we have been entrusted with the most, the, 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 the most precious gift that's ever been given to humanity, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if we have this gospel, but we don't communicate it in ways that are relevant, in ways that, that actually hit home, that somebody walks away and says, that's not for me, I don't get it, I don't get the message, then we're being irreverent. Irreverent. Therefore, we affirm the need to do new things in new ways. In other words, we will always, always, always find ways to communicate the gospel in ways that are impacting and will touch a life. Do new things in new ways without compromising the message of Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to look at a story that's found in Luke chapter 5 that's about the life of Jesus. And, you know, as we talk about stories, I love stories. You know, one of the tests of a great story is that you, you, you find yourself wishing that you were in, like as you hear the story, as you read the story, or maybe you watch it in a movie, as you're watching, you find yourself wishing to be there in that place, wishing that you were a part of this. You might even say, man, I wish I could have been in that place. It was maybe, the, the setting was maybe the 18th century, the 17th century, and you see what's going on there. You say, man, I wish I could be there. That's, that's, a, that's a test of what a good story looks like or sounds like. Another test is that you find yourself identifying with the characters in that story. That you're asking yourself, you're telling yourself, you see yourself in the story. Like you see yourself running through the hills of Scotland and saying, you know, I'm William Wallace in Braveheart. Or I'm Han Solo in Star Wars. Some of you might be saying, I'm Pedro in Napoleon Dynamite. I don't know. But you find yourself in the story. You're a character in that story. So a great story has these two elements. That you, you wish you could be there. And then you're asking yourself, who am I in this narrative? So we're going to look at this story in Luke chapter 5. It takes place in a small town of Capernaum. I have a map here. Um, Capernaum is at the very top of the Sea of Galilee, if you notice. And uh, it's, just a, it's a small town. It's a country town. It's Peter's hometown, in fact. That's where the apostle Peter, Simon Peter, that's where he's from. He's from the town of Capernaum. And so it's just... It's just a, a regular country town. It's a small little town. That's the setting of this, of this story that we're about to read. And we find that Peter, you know, it's just like I said, it's a kind of a country town. So Peter grew up there. He grew up fishing there. He grew up, you know, he grew up hunting there. You know, this is the place where he grew up. And, and then all of a sudden this unconventional rabbi shows up. 
And he says, Peter, I want you to follow me. And now you find Peter, he is, he, his life is just turned upside down as he begins to follow Jesus Christ. It's in this little town called Capernaum. Now, in fact, there's, it's, there's pretty compelling evidence that this story that we're about to read was, took place in Peter's house. Actually, Peter's house. I don't know that for sure. We don't know that for sure. But I want you to imagine the scene. It's this rural country town. Um, there's a lot of good old boys running around, but there's also some other guests in town, some out-of-towners, people that are not local, right? The, there's these religious leaders who have come to investigate this Jesus. They're there not as seekers, but as skeptics. They're feeling compelled to check him out because Jesus has just healed a leper. In fact, in Luke chapter five, the story right above this one that we're gonna read is Jesus healing this leper, and so they, they, they feel the need to come. It's, I mean, because healing a leper was a very, very uncommon uh, miracle. And so they feel the need to come and investigate this because, in fact, these religious teachers used to teach, they were used to teaching that, that a sign of the Messiah would be three miracles. And one of these miracles was the healing of a leper. But they're having a hard time believing that Jesus is the Messiah. He's just unconventional. He just doesn't do things by the rules. He's not, he's not following the rules of, of, of the Pharisees and the, and, the, and the religious teachers of that day. He's just so different. They're having a hard time believing that he's the Messiah. And, so, and then he's got this really ragtag band of mis- disciples that are following him. So they've come to investigate to know who is this guy. And they're looking for holes in his story, in his theology, in his teachings. They want to be able to discredit him. And so they've come to investigate. And so here's how this story begins. It begins in this, in this little house. There's a gathering in this little house. Luke chapter five, verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Okay, so Jesus teaching potentially Peter's house and the Pharisees and teachers of the law are sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So there was healing happening in this house. Some men carrying, came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd... They went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. So that's the story, right? There's this crowded house. Um, there's a lot of people there. These people that bring a, a paralyzed ma- uh, man to, to, uh, to, see, to see Jesus, but they can't get in the house, so they do something unconventional. They go up to the roof and they lower him down. Now, maybe you read the story, you think, well, that's what I would do. I mean, that's what I would do if I, if I knew that Jesus was in the house. I would bring my paralyzed friend on a mat, take him up to the roof, and drop him through the roof. I would do that. But then I really want to question that because the truth is, we say that in hindsight. After 2,000 years of history, of Christian history, we look back, we have the scriptures. We know, yeah, Jesus is the healer. But, but these guys, this is all new to them. They weren't sure. In fact, there was a lot of facts that were sketchy about the, you know, the fact that Jesus was the healer. And yet these guys make this incredible effort. They go all out to do whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. So what would it have been like? You know this story. I read this story, I'm thinking, what would it have been like to be there? It's a packed house. There's these religious leaders that, that 
not surprisingly, have taken the VIP seats in the house. There's a crowd behind them that are, that are pressing in, you know, behind these, these religious leaders that are pressing in to hear what Jesus has to say. There's people standing outside of the house, pushing in, leaning in. They want to hear everything he has to say. And then in verse 18, it tells us that these men came carrying um, on a mat this friend who was paralyzed. Mark, the gospel of Mark tells us that there were four friends who brought this friend to Jesus. Now, being a paralytic in that day was really essentially a death sentence because there was no wheelchairs back then. There was no government assistance programs. Unless you had a crew of, of friends who would basically do everything for you, you, you were just done for. That was the reality of, of what it was like. So you've got these four friends that must have been that for this guy. They took care of him. They did everything for him. So much so that they bring him to Jesus. Now, I don't know what caused them to bring them to Jesus. I'm not sure if maybe that one of them had seen uh, this miracle of the leper being healed. I'm not exactly sure of that. Um, but if he had, as soon as he saw that miracle, immediately what he thought about was his friend. His friend who was, a, was paralyzed, was on a mat and needed Jesus. And so he wants to bring him to Jesus. I don't know how this man who was paralyzed would have felt about this field trip. Maybe he was like, you know, I've done this so many times. I've gone to healers. I've taken all kinds of meds. I've done all kinds of things. And you know what? Each time I just come back on my mat, I'm still paralyzed. Maybe he didn't want to be disappointed again. Maybe he didn't want to get his hopes up just to be disappointed again. I'm sure he was uncomfortable with the idea of going and meeting Jesus. He likely wanted to avoid public places as well because in their religious system, either he or his parents had done something wrong. They had sinned so, so, so grievously that God had punished this man with paralysis. And so why would he want to go to a, be around a religious crowd only so that they could look down upon him as, as less than? Why would he want to go there to, to feel like maybe God was mad at him or God didn't like him? So I doubt he was very excited about going. He probably resisted his friends to going, but I'm sure these friends were going to have nothing to do with that. They were going. They were going to go to this place to meet Jesus. So they get to the house, and, they, and there's just no way to get into the house. I mean, in fact, the, the little Greek word that's used there that they tried is, implies that they tried and tried and tried. They did everything they could to get into the house. They, they went to the door. The door was locked. They went to the windows. The windows were shut. The crowd was preventing them from getting through. And so what does they do? Doesn't seem like there's a way. And so one of them has this idea. Say, hey, guys, let's go up to the roof. Let's go up to the roof. Let's dig a hole. Let's drop them down. And at this point in the story, as I'm reading the story, I begin to feel like I'm on the set of a Duck Dynasty show. I've got here look, the Duck Dynasty guys. I begin to feel like maybe these are his four friends. Right? Because that was definitely redneck ingenuity. That was definitely redneck logic that they were going to drop this guy down through the roof. They were going to dig a hole in the roof and drop him through the roof. And this is where I begin to see myself in the story. Right? Because if I think about the story, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the, the religious leaders who are skeptic, who are, have their arms crossed and like, yeah, yeah, prove yourself, Jesus. If anybody in this story, I want to be one of those four guys. I want to be one of those four guys who go up to the roof. I admire their tenacity. 
I mean, I think these friends, when I think of these friends, I look at these, these, these uh, Duck Dynasty guys right here, you know, they're just good old boys. They're just trying to do something good for their friend. They're just trying to improvise. In fact, I ran across a website this week. I think it was called Quizopolis or something like that. But where you type in, you type in your name and it spits out your redneck name. Like whatever your name is, it spits out your redneck name. So I'm thinking of myself on this roof and I've got my, my three redneck buddies on the roof with me, right? So who would that be? Who would I bring with me? On, if, if I'm imagining myself in the story, right? And I'm one of these guys and I'm, I've gone up to this roof. Who would be my three redneck friends that I would bring with me? So of course, Chris Carey would be, would be on, that, on that list and and here's uh, Chris Carey. You know, Chris Carey is our, is our experienced pastor here at Life Church. And uh, he would definitely be with me. I mean, he's been with me for the last 15 years, so I'm sure he would be up on the roof with me. And so I type in Chris Carey, and his redneck name is Billy Joe Houston. <laughs> isn't, that a cool, isn't that a cool redneck name, actually? It's like, it sounds like a, a country singer or something like that. You know, I can see Chris being as a country singer, you know? Of course, I would also bring onto that roof, Wayne Hefner, he's our executive pastor, he's a man for detail, he's very precise, he would be able to do all the engineering to make sure that the guy goes, gets lowered down well, and Wayne, you type his name in, and his redneck name is, maybe not so flattering, Billy, Billy Bob Pigpusher. <laughs> Sorry, Wayne, that your last name is Hefner, I guess Hefner and Pigpusher kind of go together in this, in this algorithm. Uh, who else would I bring with me on the roof? I would bring, of course, our campus pastor, Jairus Beckett. And, uh, and so he's, got, he's full of energy. He has strength. He would help us lower the guy. And I type in Jairus Beckett, and his, <laughs> his name is Enos Cornholler. <laughs> Enos Cornholler. In fact, as I think about this, Cedar Rapids campus, if you're listening to me right now, uh, and if I, when I come up there and hang out with you guys and I find out that you guys have been calling Jairus Enos, I'd be okay with that. I'd be okay with it. Just go ahead and keep calling him Enos. It's pretty cool. My name, of course, is Duke Tucker. That's another like strong, I could just see Duke Tucker, big rancher or something like that, you know? And so here we are imagining myself with my, with my buddies, Billy Joe, Billy Bob, and Enos, and we're up on the roof. We're just good old boys just doing whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus, we don't come from any kind of spiritual pedigree. We don't follow the rules of etiquette. We're just, we're only, we're only concerned about one thing. One thing matters to us. This friend of ours must meet Jesus. So Billy Joe says, hey guys, I've got an idea. Billy Bob's already a little skeptical about Billy Joe's ideas because Billy Joe comes up with ideas and they don't always pan out, you know? And so he's a little bit concerned, he's a little bit anxious about his idea, but Billy Joe just is like, doesn't matter. He, he's not a guy that takes no for an answer. He says, look, we're going to tear a hole in this roof and we're going to, and then later on, we might just go ahead and patch it up with some duct tape. That's okay, but we've got to get our friend to Jesus. In fact, in verse 19 of Luke 5, it says, when they could not find a way, when they could not find a way, here's a question that we must wrestle with as a church and individually. What do you do when you can't find a way? What do you do when the circumstances seem impossible? What do you do when you have this, you've been given this sacred assignment? You have to do it, but there's just no way to get there. 
What do you do when you, you feel very much called to something or, or someone, but it seems like there's just barriers, there's just obstacles in front of you. You just can't get there. You knock on the door, the door's locked. You check the windows are all locked. What do you do when it seems like it's impossible? Well, one option is you could just go home, right? You tried. You checked the doors. You checked the windows. The crowd impeded you from getting in. I mean, you try. You could just go home. You have a good excuse. We tried. But every time you see your friend on the mat, there's this little question that just surfaces in your mind. Did we try hard enough? You could say to yourself, well, just wait till later. But then... Your friend, he's been on this mat for such a long time and later's not guaranteed. What if we go back and Jesus is not there anymore? So for these guys, now is the time. Now is the time. But it doesn't seem like a very good plan. It's too impractical, right? It's a little bit distracting to others in the house. I mean, it's kind of embarrassing to be the, the people who are gonna get up on a stranger's house and dig a hole through the roof, tear the roof apart to let your friend down. It's expensive. What if it doesn't work? What if, uh, what if you're, 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 you're dropping your friend down and Jesus gets angry because you're making a mess and you're interrupting his, his sermon? And after all, why would Jesus be more, care more about this one person over the whole crowd that he's already talking, talking to? So there's all these reasons why you shouldn't do it, but these guys, they just don't quit. They're not going to give in. They're not going to give up. They're just going to do everything they can to bring their friend to Jesus. And this is what I want us as a church to be known for. We will not quit. We will do whatever it takes to get one person to Jesus Christ. We're going to do whatever it takes, and it's going to be expensive. And it's likely going to be impractical, and you know, and it might be a little bit, there might be a little bit of improvising and maybe some people in the house are gonna feel a little bit offended or upset about it, but we're gonna tear up the roof to get our friends to Jesus. Tearing the roof means that we're gonna have a bias towards action. We can sit around and talk about theology all we want. We can talk about mission all we want, but we have to be on mission. We understand that there's this sense of urgency in the assignment that we have been given. Jesus is coming back. We don't have time to wait. Tearing the roof means that we're gonna value risky innovation. We're not going to do things the way we've always done them just because we've always done them that way. Kind of like our value says, we're going to do new things in new ways. Tearing the roof means that we're going to go places that are difficult. But they're going to be difficult and it's going to be, it's going to be hard to get there, but that's where Jesus is, so we're going to go to those places. Maybe even in our own community. There might be places in our community that are, that are closed to, the, to, to us. People are not allowing access to us. We'll go there. There are countries in the world that we have right now, missionaries that we support that go into countries in this world that that are actually closed to the gospel and yet that's where they're at. We're gonna do everything we can to go places. Tearing the roof means that we will go to places that are difficult. Tearing the roof means that that we know that it's gonna, what it takes to fulfill this commission. We have to do it. This assignment is so big to get one person to Jesus Christ. That's the kind of friends that I want us to be. That's who I want to be. That's who I want us to be as a church. That we're going to do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. Those four guys. When I think of this story, though, I think, though, that often I identify more with the crowd and not so much the friends. Think about the crowd. They're sitting in this house, they're facing Jesus. 
Jesus, had, there's, it said there's power to heal, power for signs and wonders going on. They're intrigued, they're watching, they're taking notes, copious notes, they're fully engaged. Behind them are people that are outside of the house. They're not so concerned about those outside trying to get in. The crowd is mostly focused on their experience in the house. So are we the crowd? Are we the crowd? We're being the crowd when, whenever the experience of those that are in the house is prioritized over the experience of those outside of the house. It's what happens in church. We get more upset about the mess being made than the fact that messy people are walking through the doors and their lives are being cleaned up. What happens oftentimes, we get more upset about stuff being broken than excited about broken people's lives being mended together. In fact, it's when the church exists for itself and turns its back on, on those outside of the house. That's what, that's what being one of the crowd is. We're, we're about us more than them. So tearing the roof means that we're gonna go to great lengths to make sure that those outside of the house can get inside the house. We're gonna do everything we can, do whatever it takes. I imagine... <clears throat> as these four friends are tearing the roof, as they're trying to break through the roof, um, what some of the people in the crowd might have been thinking, you know, like as, as, as they're breaking through the roof, someone might yell, hey, wait a minute, we were here first. As if, as if being first gives you greater access to Jesus or makes you have more priority in Jesus' eyes. As they start digging through the roof, dust and debris starts flying everywhere and somebody says, wait a minute, this house is getting really messy and, if it, if, and I'm not gonna clean it up and if it doesn't get cleaned up, I'm just gonna go to another house. Someone might say it's too expensive what they're doing, they're tearing up the roof. Someone might say, nobody, we've never done this before, this is not the way you do it. Somebody sitting in the crowd looks at the other and kind of rolls out, yeah, let me guess, must be millennials <laughs> trying to break in. So as a church, we want to be bold and courageous. We want to be unconventional, innovative. We want to have a bias towards action. And so when the doors are shut and the windows are closed and it seems like it's impossible, we're going to do whatever it takes. Just imagine this. Imagine if all 1,400 or so people who call Life Church their home church were to leverage their, their resources, their strength, their, their innovation, their knowledge, so that one person could meet Jesus. Imagine that. So we need to ask ourselves Am I in this story? Am I one of the four friends doing whatever it takes to get my friend to Jesus? Or am I in the crowd? And don't be, don't be bad, don't be upset about being in the crowd. Sometimes we are in the crowd. But if I'm in the crowd, am I making room for those outside of the house to come in? Or am I offended because those that are outside of the house are coming in? I heard a story a couple weeks ago about a guy named Adam. Adam grew up in a very dysfunctional home. He, uh, he uh, alcoholic parents, just never even really knew his dad. And not surprisingly, he ended up in prison. Not surprisingly, he, he had committed some very serious crimes that caused him to be in prison. And while he was in prison, he, you know, he didn't know how to read or write. And so he met this other inmate who was a Christian. And this other inmate said, hey, I'll teach you how to read and write. But the way I'm going to teach you how to read and write is you're gonna, we're going to read the Bible together. 
And so Adam learned how to read and write and read the Bible at the same time, which is pretty cool while he was in prison. He was baptized in prison. Eventually he was released. After being released, he, was, uh, he, he returned back to his hometown and started attending this small little church. A few people in the church discovered that he was an ex-convict and so, so they were a little bit upset about that, afraid that they had this ex-convict in this church. So they went to the pastor and said, hey, pastor, uh, you need to tell this guy he needs to find another church. Well, the pastor, knowing that that's not possible, he, he said, listen, guys, this church is welcome to everybody. I'm not gonna tell him to leave. And so they replied back to him and said, well, if you don't tell him to leave, then we're gonna leave. And so consequently, families began to leave the church where it began to spread that there was an ex-convict in the church and these families began to leave. Adam began to feel bad about this situation and then liked the idea, the fact that he was the source of the problem in the church. And so he thought, maybe I should leave. So things started getting to a head and one Sunday night they're, they're in church, the pastor's preaching, Adam is sitting in the back and right towards the end of the service, the pastor stands up and says, hey, I've got a, an important announcement to make. Adam, will you come to the front? And so Adam, he starts going to the front and his mind is thinking, oh no, pastor has found out about my, my criminal past and he's probably gonna basically kick me out of the church. He made his way to the front thinking, how, how terrible this was. He was ashamed. He was embarrassed about what was about to happen to him. There were some other people in the church that were thinking, yeah, that's the right thing to do, to tell him to leave the church. They, maybe they were thinking, Pastor, you should have done it privately and so there wouldn't be all this awkwardness, but yes, this is the right thing to do. And so the pastor brings Adam to the front, tells him to sit down, and then he announces to the church, he says, hey, guys, I want to tell you that I have made a decision, a very, very important decision today. As many of you know, Adam has been recently released from prison. He's been having a hard time finding a job. And so I decided that um, Adam is going to be, become our new facilities uh, person here at the church. He's going to take care of the facilities. We're hiring him. We're giving him a job. And he reached into his pocket and he pulled out a set of keys and handed it to Adam. Adam says later, he just began to weep. He had never experienced anything like that. And he said, in all my life, nobody has ever given me keys to anything. Nobody's ever trusted me. He felt loved. He felt accepted. That was 20 years ago. For the last six years, Adam has been the pastor of this church. You see, Adam had friends that would stop at nothing to bring him to Jesus. An inmate who said, I'm gonna teach you how to read, but I'm gonna teach you out of the Bible that led to salvation. A pastor that didn't cave in to the pressure of church members saying, we can't have this guy in our church. And instead, accepted him and embraced him. Adam had, had people around him that were, that were cheering him on. If you look at how this story ends in Luke chapter five, verse 20. It says, when, the, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. I can, I'm, like I'm imagining myself in this story, right? And so his four friends are up on the roof and they've just lowered this guy down and Jesus looks at the guy and says, hey, your sins are forgiven. And the guy's up on the roof, is like, like Billy Bob is like, what'd he say? No, tell him that, that he's paralyzed. He needs to be healed. <laughs> the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they were challenged. They, they had found their, their, their avenue to, to, to basically discredit Jesus. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Like, which one of these two things is easier to do, right? He goes on. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, and I want you to know that I can forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on. I like how it says this in the, in the text. Took what he had been lying on. It doesn't even say his mat. It's like that thing that I was lying on all the time. That stuff, I don't even want it in my life anymore. Took up what he was lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. I wish, I wish I could have been there. I wish I could have been there. I love that Jesus told him to go home. And you know why? I think I know why he told him to go home. I mean, I think Jesus knows everything about this man. So he knew what was, what was waiting for him at home. He knew how fun it was going to be for this guy to go home and, and walk into his house, not be carried into his house, but walk into his house and meet his parents and say, Dad, Mom, I've got news for you. You didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. God loves us. He has never stopped loving us. He, he loves us so much. In fact, this, this thing that happened to me, this paralysis that I had, was so that Jesus Christ could get glory. What a celebration that would have been that day. So I read this story. What would it have been like to be there? In fact, I read so many stories in the scriptures, especially stories around that circle around healings and things that Jesus did. And I always ask myself, what would it have been like to be there? I've been watching this, this, this series called The Chosen. And, um, and I've just been just in tears, weeping, watching these shows. And much of what's going on in my mind is what would it have been like to be there? And I remember last night as I was watching part of that series and I was, again, telling myself what would it have been like to be there? It's as if the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, this is that place. This is that place. This is the place that we are going to make sure that everybody that's on the outside of the house gets into the inside of the house. This is that place. And we are his friends. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you, God, that you went to great lengths, great lengths to rescue us. You were not going to let doors that were shut and windows that were closed keep us away from you. And so, Father, now you call us, you invite us to be those friends who will do whatever it takes. If we have to tear this roof apart to get our friend to Jesus, we will tear this roof apart to get our friend to Jesus. So right now, Father, will you speak to us? Will you challenge us 
to be those kinds of friends, that we will be concerned for those that are outside of the house to get inside the house, that we will not organize all of our efforts and ministries just for those inside the house, but that we'll make sure that we are focusing on those that are outside of the house as well that we will not be upset about messes being made or things being broken, but instead we'll be excited about lives being cleaned up and shattered lives being mended. God, will you call us to be those people to do whatever it takes in Jesus' name. 